Good morning, Faith Church. Um, my name is Jerry Risser. I'm one of the elders here at Faith, and um, I won't keep you standing much longer, I promise, but uh, one of the privileges I've had in the last five years is that I have been able to travel to Kiev, Ukraine uh, with three different teams, and um, others who have gone on those trips would talk about the relationships we've built and the things that we've seen while we've been at KTS. Uh, Kiev Theological Seminary is um, a pretty amazing place, and um, one of the people who I got to meet on my first trip was um, Vasily Ostry, and I've seen him each time that we're there, and it's like meeting an old friend every time we connect. And the greatest joy I had, uh, I told him, would be sometime you just have to come to the United States. Well, guess what? Um, he was able to come. He's here with a team of pastors. Um, his, uh, his church in, uh, just outside Kiev has uh, seven pastors, so you think we have a shared leadership model. Um, five of those pastors are here for a conference in Lafayette, and then they're going to be traveling other places in the U.S., but he absolutely wanted to come and um, meet those of you at Faith Church who have been um, praying for youth ministry, um, where he is a professor. He was a student there. He was one of the first early students in youth ministry, and apparently was a pretty good student because the dream that KTS has had of handing leadership over to native Ukrainians um, has been realized because uh, Vasily is the program director for youth ministry and they are educating youth pastors across Ukraine in countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, um, all over the former Soviet Union. And um, we're thrilled that uh, we can have him. So we uh, will also get to hear scripture in his heart language today. And so we're thrilled for that. So um, let's welcome him as we hear God's word. Morning, brother and sister. Hello from Ukraine, a great pri privilege to be with you. I know your church makes a lot ministry work uh, outside US. Thank you very much for your ministry work in Ukraine. Maybe you know in my country there are many problems, but economy, military conflict in East country and other, but in those problem, people are more open to God. I want to say important things. Thank you for your open hearts to God and Ukraine. Finally, please continue to pray for Ukraine. And now uh, we read the Bible, Second Corinthians chapter 4. I read in Ukraine, in Ukrainian. Ось тому, мавши за милосердям Божим таке служіння, ми не тратимо відваги, але ми відреклися тайного сорому, не ходячи в хитрості та не перекручуючи Божого Слова, але з явленням правди доручаємо себе кожному сумлінню людському перед Богом. Коли ж наша Євангелія і закрита, то закрита для тих, хто гине, для невіруючих, яким... Бог цього світу засліпив розум, щоб для них не засяяло світло Євангелії, слави Христа, а Він – образ Божий. Бо ми не себе самих проповідуємо, але Христа Ісуса Господа. Ми ж самі раби, раби ваші заради Ісуса. 
Бо Бог, що звелив був світові засяяти з темряві, у серцях наших засяяв, щоб просвітити нам знання слави Божої в особі Христовій. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let, sh let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. А ми маємо скарб цей у посудинах глиняних, щоб велич сили була Божа, а не від нас. У всьому нас тиснуть та не потиснені ми. Ми в важких обставинах, але не впадаємо в розпач. Переслідують нас, але ми не полишені, ми повалені та не погублені. Ми завсіди носимо в тілі мертвість Ісусову, Ісусову щоб з'явилося в нашому тілі і життя Ісусове. Бо завсіди нас, що живемо, віддають на смерть за Ісуса, щоб з'явилось Ісусове в нашому смертельному тілі. Тому-то смерть діє в нас, а життя у вас. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Sorry. That's my fault, Nick. Let's start that over. Cut tape. Start rolling right now. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to uh, all of you who are warm inside the room right now, and a uh, hearty hello to everyone who's catching this on the podcast later. Uh, we missed you this morning. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful Mark got up and gave a bit of an update on the shared leadership model and uh, how it's been going, how we're uh, trying to make sure we're continuing and improving because it's an opportunity uh, for me to get to know some of you a little bit better. Many of you I know fairly well from you know, be my previous role as the student ministry pastor here, and I've worked with you, I've worked with your kids, but some of you don't know me as well, so I'd like to share a little something about myself. Um, actually, I'm a little nervous uh, to share. Anyone I've told has told me this is very gross, and the first hour agreed, um, but if I if I didn't tell you, I wouldn't be being true to myself, so I'm just going to put it out on the table. I love mint chocolate chip ice cream with hot fudge and melted peanut butter on top. Come on. 
All right, well, no converts in here. But if you get some good mint chocolate chip ice cream and then melt the, the peanut butter in the microwave, drizzle it on top, add the hot chocolate, it's just, it's sublime. It, it, there's literally no better ice cream combination out there. I kid you not. Okay, some of you are still shaking your heads now. No, so I'm guessing by that you think it's gross. Well, that's fine. Uh, but imagine for a moment with me that I wanted to convince you that mint chocolate chip ice cream with peanut butter and hot fudge is objectively the best ice cream combination in the world. Not, not just that I wanted you to like it. Uh, your tastes are probably not refined enough for that. I wanted you to admit or agree with me that whether you appreciate it or not, it is in fact objectively the best. It's objectively true. Mint chocolate chip ice cream with peanut butter and hot fudge, number one. What would I do? What should I do? Demonstrate it. Make some arguments for it. Uh, try to convince you, invite you to hang out with my friends who agree with me, whatever. But demonstrate is exactly right. You can bet somewhere in this process, I am going to give you the absolute best bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream with peanut butter and hot fudge that I can find. We're going to go get some Hazendag, Hagendaz, Hazendag? That's my own brand. That's what I'm calling this from now on, the Hazendag. Hagendaz mint chip. The best mint chocolate chip ice cream you can get, melt some Jif peanut butter in the microwave, go get some uh, Harold's original hot fudge out of uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. We'll just put this all together in the best bowl with the best flatware I can find, and I'm going to give it to you because I want you to taste and see that the bowl is good. It's so good. Now, obviously, uh, I'm not going to do a taste test up here, and it's not really the point of this discussion about ice cream. Uh, the point is, well, when it comes to ice cream, it's all subjective, right? It's all based on your tastes. I can't uh, convince any one of you that mint chocolate chip ice cream with peanut butter and hot fudge is legitimately the best unless your tastes are already kind of aligned in that direction or misaligned, whatever the case may be, or maybe mine are. Uh, it's, it's personal. It's subjective. It's, it's, up to, it's, it's up to your tongue. What you believe is best depends on your tastes. In some cases, it's the same with Christianity. 150 years ago, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote in his book, The Joyful Wisdom, what is now decisive against Christianity is our taste, no longer our reason. And what he was saying by that is, I don't have to have a good reason for rejecting Christianity or rejecting God. It's enough that I just don't like it. What's decisive against Christianity is our taste, no longer our reason. Now, if, that's, if we're talking about ice cream, which has limited eternal significance, not that big of a deal. But if we're talking about God, who is who he is, whether our tastes are susceptible to liking him or not, then there is an eternal significance. So how do we, as a church, operate in an environment where taste is more important than reason? How do we operate in a world in which taste has a deeper impact than reason does? Is there a way for us to, to give people the best bowl of Christianity we can find? Or to put it another way, uh, if human beings' fundamental orientation to the world is what we love, which we talked about two weeks ago, 
And when we love something other than God most, our loves get disordered and our lives get disordered, as we talked about last week, then, then how do we talk about and present the claims of Jesus and live the gospel in a way uh, that strikes a deep chord with the heart, that appeals to the taste, maybe even more than to the head? Is there a way for us to do this in today's world? Well, we read 2 Corinthians 4 because I believe in this passage is at least part of or the beginnings of an answer to this question. But I want to warn you up front, as we explore 2 Corinthians 4, we are not going to find simply uh, some new apologetic method for talking about Jesus or a lesson in how to replace some words with other words so that we're less offensive. That's not what we're going to find here. Uh, as we go through 2 Corinthians 4, and actually as we begin in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, we're going to find a, a fairly simple answer that an encounter with God's beauty in his glory, an encounter with God's beauty leads to beautiful lives that testify to a beautiful gospel. An encounter with God's beauty leads to beautiful lives that testify to a beautiful gospel. Now, you can tell by the fact that I use the word beauty three times that the kind of appeal I'm talking about in today's world is an aesthetic appeal, an appeal to taste or to sense. Uh, it's not primarily about making a better intellectual appeal for God or making a better appeal to someone's moral duty to worship him. Uh, it's an aesthetic appeal. We live in a world where truth is whatever your friends will let you get away with saying. And the only moral duty is to be authentic to yourself, to express your authentic self. So in this world, we need a way of, of talking about God and of talking about Jesus and of living out the gospel that appeals on a beautiful level. Not that God's beauty and the beauty of the gospel is somehow separate from its truth or its goodness, but that it is beautiful precisely because it is true and it is good. So as we go through 2 Corinthians 4, these first few verses, we're going to discover a beautiful gospel as we encounter God's beauty and explore how it leads to beautiful lives. Let's jump in. 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, it's on page 1147 of the Black Bible, underneath that seat in front of you if you want to follow along. And as I said, we're going we're gonna to step up one verse into chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3, uh, verse 18, because we began this sermon series on discipleship by looking primarily at verse 18 in order to define discipleship. Uh, we discovered there that uh, change, transformation happens in us whenever, whenever we gaze on the glory of God, the glory of God's goodness to us in Christ, and then we are transformed by it. He transforms us. So we define discipleship or disciple-making as any and, and all of the structures that, and systems that we put around ourselves to help us, to help one another in the rhythms, the disciplines that continually reorient our gaze back to God's glory. Discipleship is the things that we do with and for one another and for the world to, to shift our focus back onto God because it's in the shifting of the focus and the gazing on his glory that we are then transformed into his image. Remember, verse 18 said, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, some of your translations say. Not that we're seeing his reflection, but that we're studying it. We're gazing at it intently like you would an, an image in a mirror. It says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
That's when we're face to face with God's glory, his goodness to us in Christ, and we examine it, we meditate on it, we, we think on it, we put it into practice that we are transformed into his image from one glory to another. I want to take a moment and pause before we go to chapter 4 to, to just talk about glory. It's kind of a weighted and a, and a freighted word that we use because throughout the Old and the New Testament, there's different shades of meaning to the word that apply in different places. Uh, when we use the word glory, usually in the context of, of singing glory to God, give glory to God, saying to God be the glory or to God be all glory, we tend to use the word in a way that kind of means a reputation, or a reputation that should elicit some sort of response. Uh, synonyms might be fame or honor. And so we say, you know, to God be the glory means to God be his reputation. Give him the recognition he deserves for what he's done. You could say that your resume, for instance, if you have a resume that gets you a job interview, that resume is part of your glory. It's part of your reputation that elicits a response. You're trying to get into a master's program and you submit a transcript. That transcript is part of your glory. It's part of your reputation that elicits a specific response. Now, that's a good way to use the word, especially when we're saying to God be the glory. But in this particular case, there's a slightly different shade of meaning to it, especially as the context connects it with these ideas of light and illumination. Another aspect that I think shines through a little more clearly here is the idea of glory as a visible divine radiance, a kind of splendor, or, or one theologian calls it the luminous manifestation of God's presence. Now, not, not luminous in like the soft white light bulb with the easy listening music playing, more of the stare at the sun and burn out your retinas kind of luminescence. It's, it's a powerful, powerful light uh, that radiates the divine presence. Now, literally a light, metaphorically, an, you know, a, a physical light. Well, in, in this particular passage, it's being used a little more metaphorically as it's a, a light of knowledge and illumination, but we'll get to that. Uh, over the centuries, theologians have talked about God's glory and all sorts of different ideas and different ways have, have been brought out, but one consistent thread that has come through is that most of, of the most respected theologians agree God could not be glorious were he not also true and good and beautiful? The true, the good, and the beautiful. God must be not just the most of all three, but the very definition of all three in order for him to be glorious. He's true, he's good, he's beautiful. Now, when we say God is beautiful, we're not, we're not saying that God is you know, an attractive-looking guy like the divine equivalent of people's sexiest man alive or something like that. Uh, he's not just, you know, beauty except bigger. He's the very definition of beauty. In other words, uh, anything that is beautiful is only beautiful to the extent that it reflects God's own beauty first. It's only beautiful to the extent to which it participates in the divine nature. God is the foundation for truth. He's the foundation for goodness. He's also the foundation for beauty. Which, side note, means beauty is objective. It's not actually in the eye of the beholder. That's subjective. But anyway, that's a different discussion for a different day. Uh, God is objectively beautiful. Which means to say that we respond to God's beauty is to say we react to him in the same way we, we react to any other beautiful thing 
or person or object. Uh, we first see it, and then our, one theologian says, uh, enraptured by it. You know, imagine yourself walking through an art gallery or a museum and uh, seeing a painting or a sculpture or hearing music of, of a certain kind and just um, being, be, you know, being captured by it. Like you can't, you can't let it go. You have to reckon with the beauty that, that's, in a sense, almost assaulting you at that moment. Uh, to the point where you can feel lost in it. It's almost impossible to pull away from for the moment. Uh, that's the experience of God's beauty, is to perceive it and be, be captured by it, be drawn into it, be enraptured by it. And just like any other experience of profound beauty, we can't walk away untouched. Uh, look at Second Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul, having come right off of verse 18, saying, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed, then says, therefore, in verse 1, therefore, okay, because of this, uh, therefore, because of this glory, because of this mercy we have from God, we have this ministry, the, uh, the ministry of the new covenant he refer referred back to uh, earlier in chapter 3. We have this ministry of the new covenant, this ministry of sharing uh, the gospel of God's glorious grace with one another. He says, because we have this, we don't lose heart. Because we have had this encounter with God's beauty, with his truth, with his goodness, in short, with his glory, we don't lose heart. It's strengthening us internally. It's strengthening us in the inner being. So we don't lose heart, but then in verse 2, he lists a bunch of things that he does lose. Verse 2, we, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says, look, I, I've, been, I've been exposed to, I've encountered this beauty, this, this goodness, been confronted by it almost. And because he's been confronted by this goodness, he says, there, there are things in, in my life that have to change. There are uglinesses in my life that have to be gotten rid of. Because any confrontation with true beauty is going to leave us in the position where we don't want, well, we don't just want to observe it, we want to become part of it, and we want it to become part of us. C.S. Lewis puts in one of his sermons, he says, we don't want merely to just see beauty, we want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to, to bathe in it, to become part of it. See, when we're moved by or possessed by the beauty of God, when we're captured and enraptured by his glory, we want to be part of it. We want it to be part of us. We want it to control us, to conform who we are to the pattern of that beauty, to, to be in harmony with it. So there are uglinesses in our lives we just can't tolerate anymore. Uglinesses in our ministries that we can't tolerate anymore. We renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways, refuse to practice cunning, or to tamper with the, with the word of God. Because an encounter with a beautiful God leads to a beautiful life, where we can't, we have to confront, we can't, we can't tolerate the uglinesses that are inside of us. We want to be conformed to this beauty. Though as Paul goes on, 
verses 3, 4, and continuing, he says, unfortunately, not everyone sees this beauty. Not everyone has the capacity to apprehend this beauty. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, and even if our gospel is, is veiled or hidden, it's veiled to those who are perishing. He says, in their case, in the case of those who, who can't see this beauty, uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, uh, who is the image of God. Paul borrows back from his, uh, his analogy about Moses from the previous chapter to say that there's a veil still over some people's eyes, over some people's faces. There's a hiddenness of God that, that God's glory, his beauty, is, is veiled from them. They can't see it. Uh, not because they chose not to. Well, that's not the right way to put it. Not because they don't want to, uh, but because some other beauty, some other love, some other uh, glory has affectively grabbed their hearts. He, he says here in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, we're not necessarily supposed to read that as a specific reference to one individual, the God of this world or the God of this age, as if Satan are going around like throwing blinders on people as quickly as he can. The God of this age, the God of this world, is a multitude of gods, probably different for each one of us. It's whatever has captured our hearts more than God has. It's blinded us to his glory. Every other year or so, our, our house becomes kind of a, a one-person rabid fan base of Olympic sports. Uh, so when we ended up with a, a last-minute uh, opening ceremonies watch party, uh, what was that, Friday night, uh, my wife, uh, Jenna, had some very specific and clear instructions for anyone who entered our home. This is a quote. Please be advised. This is why you should never text things because then, then I can quote them. Please be advised that in addition to random crying over human interest stories and atypical patriotic spirit, there is also a requirement that anyone in my house during Olympics must cheer for the USA and hate watch any athletes from Canada and Russia. <laughs> any positive words spoken about Canada or Russia will result in an immediate lifetime ban. So some of our friends who came over made tiny little Canadian and Russian flags and hid them all over the house. And as Jen has found them, she's burned them one by one. <laughs> I think it's something to do with uh, those particular countries and their longtime dominance of, of figure skating that has made them mortal enemies in our household. So if I were to suggest perhaps being magnanimous and citizens of the world, rooting for all teams and all individuals to simply do their best to the glory of God, um, I would be shot down very quickly. Uh, that is not the point of the Olympics. It is, it is not the love of sport. It's the love of country. And that love has, in effect, blinded us to other loves. The love for our team has blinded us to any possible love for any other team, at least during the two and a half weeks of the Olympics. Now, we're not hap hapless victims of this love. It's a love that we chose, love that we've been trained in. Uh, it's a love that many of us were born into. Some of us maybe were adopted into it, but it wasn't imposed on us. You know, we shouldn't kid ourselves. The things we love are things we have chosen to love because they've appealed to us and appeared to us to be the most beautiful. And once you are focused on one love, you're blind 
to all others. Now, the devastating effect of being blinded by rival loves it comes through pretty clearly in Paul's words because the effect is that God's beauty can end up veiled or hidden. Hidden, that is, unless he chooses to reveal it. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, a kind of impersonal creation. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts a personal revelation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I think Paul takes us all the way back to the creation of the world and God's movement in creation to, for two main reasons. The first is to help us to realize that we only get light because of his divine will and his grace. We're not able to turn on the light ourselves. We go looking for the light. We continue to stumble around in darkness. It's not until and unless and when God says, let there be light in our hearts that we're able to apprehend his beauty. It's all God's gracious intervention first. And second main reason we go all the way back to creation is because just as we were completely unable and not a part at all of our own creation, so are we unable and not a part at all of God's choosing to reveal himself to us, which means it's completely by grace. There's nothing we've done, nothing we could do to deserve or earn God saying, let there be light in our hearts. We weren't closer to light than anyone else or more likely to reflect it or anything like that. It's completely and simply God's grace. Because we, we've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, we are fallen creatures whose loves are rampant and wild. We love so many other things we mistake these other things that attract us as the things that should attract us. And the things that are truly beautiful, uh, for some reason, turn us off. It's because of the sin and the disordered love in our own hearts that we sometimes find God's goodness to us not beautiful but boring. Not enlivening but deadening. Our eyes are blinded, our hearts are veiled to the beauty of God until and unless he chooses and says, let light shine. And then we can see. This is why an encounter with God's beauty leads to a beautiful life. Not just because we recognize his beauty and want to be conformed to it, but we also recognize his grace in even allowing us to see it. How could we not want to live in light of the light that he's given to us? And because a beautiful God and a beautiful life work together, they, they will automatically testify to a beautiful gospel. When our lives are becoming more and more conformed to God's goodness and his truth and his beauty, then our lives will, will testify to the beauty of, of the gospel itself. Look at verses 7 through 12. This is somewhat well-known passage, the, the jars of clay uh, passage. Paul says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There's an astounding contrast in these verses, a contrast between the, the raw and the dirty and the gritty earthenness of humanity and the, the 
splendorous, uh, majestical treasure of God. It's, it's a, a contrast uh, a pastor slash artist friend of mine uh, would call an odd juxtaposition of incongruent elements. He was an art major, so he knows words like that. Uh, it's two things that do not go together, and having gone together, they, they, they either uh, completely destroy the work or they, they heighten it. See, Paul uses this metaphor of jars of clay or earthen vessels saying that we are a container for the treasure of God, the treasure being uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as he said at the end of verse 6. We are fragile, breakable, easily destroyed vessels for the treasure that is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you probably realize this already, but in a pre-banking society, uh, you know, a person's wealth was not measured so much in uh, uh, numbers on a sheet of paper that was mailed to you on a monthly basis. Uh, wealth was more physical. It was, uh, it was something you could grab onto, Scrooge McDuck style. You know, you knew where your treasure was, and you kept it safe, and you kept it hidden for when you needed it. But this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, is a treasure that is not intended to be hidden, it's intended to be used. It's not, it's not supposed to be locked up and kept secret, it's supposed to be out in the open and made apparent. So it's put in this, this jar made out of clay or mud. It's a, an easily, easily breakable, easily fractured container. Or, you know, as Leonard Cohen said, the, uh, uh, the cracks are absolutely necessary, uh, or else how could the light get out? Which I, I think makes it even more fascinating, verses 8 and 9 and 10, because we don't usually read them together, and yet, yet Paul goes right from this idea of treasure, of, uh, of this treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the, in the face of Jesus Christ, to saying, I'm this breakable vessel for the treasure. He says, and yet, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Uh, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's almost as if the treasure in the vessel is so overwhelmingly powerful that the vessel itself can never be crushed. In other words, it's, it's like he's saying that an encounter with God's glory, with his goodness and his truth and his beauty, a, a true encounter, a face-to-face -face reckoning with God's glory leads to a life that no matter what happens cannot be crushed. A life that cannot be stomped out or, or, or pushed down. The, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in us and through us as we're broken by this world will draw other people to him. Madeline Langle once wrote, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. She said we draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. We show them a light. Now, that means it's not on us to try to be the light. It's not on us to try to be the treasure. We're the vessel for the treasure. We're its container. We're not its source, which is absolutely freeing. 
we're able to then say, like Paul did, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're, we're, we're at a loss, but able to continue on. We're, we can be persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Because it doesn't depend on us. We're not the treasure. God is. We're just the vessel. And he goes on to say in these next few verses, 10, 11, 12, uh, in essence, the more he cracks, the more the light comes through. As he talks, especially in verse 11, uh, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, may be made visible in our mortal flesh. A beautiful God will, will use a life conformed to his beauty to testify to the beauty of his gospel. That's the job of the church. Now, throughout history, there have been kind of two primary ways that the church has, has set itself apart from the rest of the world, has testified, testified to the beauty of God and to his gospel. Uh, on the one hand, the church has lived, has tended to live, um, not all the time and not always perfectly, but the church has tended to live more generously and more compassionately than the world it found itself in. So... Uh, Church has cared for the poor, advocated for justice, invested in development of culture, fought for the marginalized, uh, argued for peace. And that's been good, but it's only half the story. The church has also endured hardship, incredible hardship in different parts of the world. The church has suffered persecution patiently, testified to the truth of Christ on pain of martyrdom, and has shared the gospel under the threat of death for doing so. Now, one early apologist captured both sides of this sort of twofold expression of God's goodness uh, by writing uh, somewhere around the third century, saying this, For the Christians uh, display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They marry, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are poor yet make many rich. They lack in all things yet abound in all. And, and, and now it turns. They are dishonored and yet in every dishonor are glorified. They're evil spoken of and yet they're justified. They're reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. See, the church has consistently both uh, lived a better life and in a sense died a better death than the culture around them. And the same call is on us to live a better life and die a better death. It's a little more difficult now. Primarily because all of the compassionate and humanitarian things the church has done throughout history are now considered the basic default uh, behavior required of all enlightened moderns. So where, whereas the church historically was, was arguing for the value of every individual, saying made in the image of God, every person should be cared for and protected, uh, and we should have orphanages and hospitals and universities and give education and things like that, well, now that's just what everybody does. That side of it, we should do, absolutely. I'm not saying we should care less for the poor or the marginalized or the uneducated among us. I'm saying it, 
might be, we might be at a point in our culture's history where we have to shift a little to the other side of not just living well, but dying well. Let me explain a little bit uh, what I mean. There's four, I think four kind of main areas where the church now has the opportunity to lead the way within this culture. Now these, I'm not pulling these directly from the text. These are my ideas as I try to apply this text to our own lives. Uh, so feel free to, to disagree or, or argue with me. Um, I think the things that, that are left to the church, since we can't simply just live a generally good life anymore and sort of lifestyle evangelism, uh, lifestyle witness to people, we have to, here's the four things, uh, learn to succeed with humility, which requires a death to ourselves, uh, we have to learn to fail without a loss of personal identity. Again, kind of a death to ourselves. Uh, we have to learn how to support justice without ourselves becoming oppressors. And we have to learn how to die without fear. So if you have like a to-do list or goals for 2018, um, write those down. Like those are good targets. Uh, learn to succeed with humility, fail without loss of per personal identity, support justice without becoming oppressors uh, yourself, and die without fear. Now, these are some ideas that we're, we're going to spend some more time in later as we get into the third part of this, this big sermon series on discipleship. Uh, but just to give you a brief summary of what, I'm, what I mean by this, you know, as in our culture, it's difficult to succeed and stay humble. I mean, it's difficult for any of us to succeed and stay humble, Right? But as Christians, we are those few who have been told and who know that we are nowhere near as good as what's said about us sometimes. You know, when you succeed and somebody lavishes praise on you and you're like, well, thanks, if you only really knew. We are nowhere near as good as our press some days, and we know we are not consistently as good as our best days. So we need to learn to succeed without, without or succeed with humility, but we also need to learn to fail without it kind of attacking our sense of ourselves and our personal identity. Because just as we are not our best days, we are also not our worst days. Well, we kind of are, but we are loved through and beyond them. Even on our worst days, when we have completely failed, uh, we are still so much more loved than we could even dare hope or imagine. And because as we learn to succeed with humility, to, to fail without losing a sense of ourselves, we can also uh, advocate for justice in this world without in turn becoming another oppressor on anyone who disagrees with our particular conception of justice. In this world, it's very difficult to advocate for a universal right without, at the same time, condemning those who do not agree with you uh, about that particular right or idea or, or belief. But we, as, as Christians, knowing it doesn't, it doesn't depend on us, coercion didn't work on us, we had to be drawn by God's beauty, uh, we of all people can know that justice can be found not by coercion but by appeal. And finally, we can die without fear. This comes through pretty clearly in verse 11, which I already read, as, as Paul says, we who live are always being given over to death. So he says in verse 12, death is at work at, in us, but life is at work in you. He recognizes that, that our deaths, not, not just our daily, uh, our daily deaths to ourselves, 
testify and minister to God's people, but our, our death itself can as well. If we've learned how to do the kind of daily self-sacrifice that allows God to use us in the lives of others. This, I think, this kind of, uh, of aesthetic appeal for the gospel is only possible when we have encountered God's beauty and been transformed by his beauty so that we look at our lives and don't think, well, am I doing right, but is what I'm doing beautiful? And so it testifies to a beautiful gospel. So let's take this home with us uh, in the few minutes we have left. What, what do we do to make this apply to this afternoon or tomorrow when you get to work or to school? Well, I've got three just quick observations uh, by way of, of application. And the first is simple uh, and yet very difficult. The first is simply make room for beauty. Make room to encounter God's transcendent glory, his truth, his goodness, and his beauty in your daily and in your weekly rhythms of life. If, if you're the kind of person who uh, gets up before the sun gets up and then just goes hard all the way until you crash in bed uh, long after the sun has gone down, only to wake up the next day and repeat, when are you possibly going slow enough to be captured by the beauty of God? It's like going to an art museum and running through at top speed. It's very difficult to be captured by something as you're blurring past it in a moment. If you want to be captured by the glory of God, then you, we've, we've got to learn how to do the things that make us stop and reflect and think and be in his presence or it's not going to happen. Make room for beauty. Second, Ask God to reveal his beauty to you. Making room is only half of it. The other half is asking God to say, let light shine in your hearts. Ask him to let light shine. Ask him to reveal his beauty to you. Because as the, as the, the beauty of the gospel is revealed to us in deeper ways, we're drawn more into it. We know it more, and then more of its beauty comes through to us. Uh, in a sense, in a, in a in a spiral, in a drilling down into our hearts as the gospel is discovered and applied over and over and over again throughout our lifetimes. And as it's discovered and applied, and as it transforms us, we can ask ourselves, thirdly, how is the beauty of God transforming me? How is the beauty of God transforming you? Now, I don't mean just in the sense of since you woke up this morning or since I started preaching, uh, but over the last month, over the last year or the last three years, how have you become more aware of the beauty of God and the glory of what he has done for you in Christ? See, because it's vital that the church continually re-engage the gospel in the beauty of God's holiness and his glory so that we, being people who are constantly being transformed, can more easily invite others into the way of transformation. Not holding up ourselves as a picture of where you need to get to, uh, but holding up Christ as the picture of where we're going as the light shines through us to others. So, simple challenge, profoundly difficult, takes a lifetime to learn. Let the beauty of God's goodness to you in Christ transform you. Because an encounter with God's beauty leads to a beautiful life testifying to a beautiful gospel. Father, we're grateful that uh, you came to us in Christ not just in truth, 
or in goodness, uh, but in beauty. You appeal to our minds, to our wills, and also to our hearts as we are able to gaze on the beauty of your holiness, of your moral perfection, as we, uh, we understand and apprehend the beauty of your self-sacrificial love for us and sending Jesus to die for us. Uh, we're transformed as that beauty becomes part of us and we want to become part of it as we, we find ourselves drawn to you as the greatest good and the greatest thing we will ever know or ever experience. God, reveal yourself to us, draw us to you, transform us by your grace, and transfix us in your gaze, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.